and I think it's very core to what makes a great entrepreneur, which is like, sometimes you gotta do crazy shit to, to make things work. Hello, and welcome to the IndieBob podcast, where we talk with founders, VCs, and scientists about what's exciting and interesting in biology and life sciences. I'm Gwen Chenny, your host and a partner at IndieBob New York. On this session, we have Michael Langer, who is currently in the corporate development of Peer Therapeutics. He also started Old Silver Ventures with his sister. If folks recognize Michael's last name, he's actually the son of the famous Bob Langer. Michael, welcome to the Indie Bob podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Gwyneth. It's uh, great to be here. So I'm sure everyone's thinking, uh, what's it like growing up with Bob Langer as a father? So let's get that question out of the way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny when I when I was much younger as as a kid, I actually told my dad that I wish that R.L. Stein, who's the was the author of Goosebumps, was actually my dad. I didn't really think it was all that cool, all this the biotech stuff that he was doing. So as I've gotten older, I, I think I, I've grown to appreciate it more and think that it's actually pretty cool. But I guess to answer your question, I mean, he, he always he's a very visionary kind of person, and I think always has big visions of of making things happen and also believing that they will. And so I I, I think probably the one of the biggest things I probably learned from him was the idea of just really never giving up and and. And if you truly believe and, you know, have faith in these things, I mean, obviously not everything will always go right, but I think generally and directionally, you can make some pretty incredible things happen. And so that that's certainly been a big thing that I've learned from him. I, I think the other thing is, you know, no matter who he's become or any of that, I think one of the, the most important things to him has always just been being kind. And so I think kindness is something that, I've seen always in terms of how he treats other people and how he treats business and, and really everything in terms of sort of his ethos. Those would probably be the two biggest things that I would take from growing up around him. Those are great traits. Um, any sort of standout stories, both on the grit side or on the kindness? Yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I recently learned that I, I think is kind of hilarious, I actually didn't really know it until I was much older. I guess when he, when he was starting out, and it's been something that I've really like to take to heart because I think it's important, which is, is how do you be scrappy and resourceful? And so one of the, the early stories in his career, they were doing a bunch of work on different bones and things like that and needed that as something that they could do experiments with. And so, you know, there's only so many that you can get. And so I guess he would go to this meat factory and he built a relationship with them and and uh, he would go there, you know, every day and get more and more bones. And that would allow him to do his research. And I, I really like that because it's, it's, and I think it's very core to what makes a great entrepreneur, which is like, sometimes you got to do crazy shit to, to make things work. And uh, so I, I, always, I really like that, even though it was a later story that I learned about him. But it, I think it, it's a cool one. I, I think that's great. What I all often tell founders is don't do anything unethical. But everything else, you just have to be aggressive and make it work. Yes, yeah, for sure. So at what age did you finally realize that your dad was cool? <laughs> I think probably not until I was like 23 or 4. <laughs> um, I, I think that maybe like by the time I was like 19 or 20, it, it became more apparent that people saw him in a certain way. Uh, but I think that the idea of it being cool probably wasn't until when I probably actually started thinking about career stuff. Um, so yeah. 
pretty recent. I'm 31 now, so really only seven years the dad has been cool. <laughs> I'll make sure to tell him that <laughs> when, I, when I see him next. Um, so let's talk about your career and Old Silver. So you've had a pretty much a rock star career at Pierre so far. Um, and you also started uh, Old Silver Ventures. And now that you've gotten more on the seed stage side, how do you pick companies? Because with a lot of biotech seed stage companies, you have no product. You definitely don't have animal models. Some of them don't even have proof of concept in Petri. So how do you, how do you pick them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've, so I, a lot of the, what we've done at the fund started out of doing angel investing. I think the ones, and at least at the seed stage that we've gotten excited about, you know, generally we've been wanting to find companies. We, we really like ones that use materials or our core biotech specifically in therapeutics. I think for us, it's probably more founder than science, but the science is still important. And so I think when we've done these, a lot of it, it has been around believing in the entrepreneur and their vision and some of their background that they have to be able to have some of those important experiences, um, as well as the people they build around them. I think some of the important part is their ability to have advisors, advisory board members around them and utilizing them in a, in a, in a good way where they, they actually listen to them and are able to grow and are willing to grow based on some of the the feedback they get is sometimes hard feedback. And so as, as you get to know some of these entrepreneurs, I think that you can see that and, and their thoughtfulness around those people in their court. And that I think being something that really allows them to enact their vision and you know hopefully make it very successful. So I, I totally agree on the power of the advisory board. There's been a bit of a backlash in Silicon Valley on having you know too strong a board. You know, what are you hiding? Have you seen that in on um, you know the Eastern Seaboard with biotech? I mean, it's interesting. I think it's something that would become very clear if it didn't add up with other things that were there, because I think the fundamentals. I mean, I, I think there's usually a strong correlation of the reason why there is such an advisory board is because of you know what they've done or what they're doing or how big it could be or you know early success. I'm sure there are also examples where that's not the case, but I think it's more the exception to the rule. And I think you, it would become pretty clear in diligence that it's way too heavy on one barbell versus the other. And then that would become a red flag. Well, that, how do they have eight Nobel prize winners yet? They don't even have a paper or IP or, you know, any of these, these things that, that are usually pretty important. So I, I think, I think there's usually, You'll, you'll see patterns. So the other question I like to ask uh, investors is their anti-portfolio, just to keep everyone honest. Um, what are some of the things, what are some companies that you've missed and what did you miss? Yeah, so when I was really starting out, I had obviously less experience in so certain things that I probably wouldn't think about now mattering as much seemed to matter then. So I think when I first started, I would look at things with my dad and I think it would become very important. Like, what is the valuation? But at the seed stage, if something is 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, if you really believe it will work and be big, I mean, you always want to have the best valuation that you can. But I think fundamentally, it, it doesn't matter all that much if it's 10 or 20, if you really think it's going to work 
and there's not a strong chance, at least in your mind, that there would be, you know, the ability for something to really go wrong. And there's, you know, multiple pivots. So if you're an early investor, you know, you see some sort of, uh, you know, massive dilution or something. But ultimately, I think the evaluation at that stage doesn't matter as much to, to a point, but certainly in that like five to $20 million range. And so there was one company of a, a, a friend of mine from growing up that, that she started. And, um, you know, we had the opportunity to get in and, uh, you know, now, now they're like, uh, you know, a billion plus company, like three years later. So I certainly kick myself every day, uh, for, for that one. But it, I think it's one where that that's definitely been a lesson to me where, if you really believe in what they're doing and that it will work and it will be a big thing, um, that doesn't matter quite as much, especially as an angel investor. So I, I do a hundred percent agree with you on this. Um, the one pushback I've heard is, you know, how do, how do you differentiate that versus it's just too hot of a market and it's a signal that you should be investing less and waiting out, you know, the, the overheating market. I think it comes down to the per still the person. So like I, I knew just from knowing this person that like she was a grinder and like definitely was someone who I believed would be able to get shit done. And she was. And, um, you know, I, I think when you have a certain way or thesis of things, you have to continue on it because if you deviate it from it too much, then your thesis, you're not really living by that. And, and then it, I think makes it more difficult to be successful. Uh, with those investments or picks. And so I think it, it, it it's much more about who the person is than the market. Because to your point, you know, there are a lot of markets that are hot and there's probably only a few winners. And I think who that winner is, like either A, you have to believe there's some exceptional part to the founder or B, that they have some sort of, you know, kind of ridiculous competitive advantage for whatever reason. Maybe it's relationships, maybe it's, you know, they've just built such an enormous, uh, you know, user base or any any of those kinds of things. So I totally agree with you on uh, the importance of grit and getting things done for a founder. I, I actually think that's the most important uh, trade for a founder. So I'm asking a lot of sort of anti-portfolio, anti-trade questions. So I've definitely been wrong on assessing if a founder <clears throat> is, is gritty. Uh, they are always gritty up to a point, right? And it's hard to assess at what point do they give up, right? And so have you gotten it wrong? And what did you miss at the beginning of how gritty a founder is? You know, I, I've only been at the game for two and a half, three years. And so I've not seen any, not that I'm not, I mean, I, I still will see if, if how, how right I am uh, or wrong. Uh, so I, I think... I don't think I've seen any anyone who I've significantly found to be anything less than what I had thought, but I think there certainly will be times where that may happen. I, I think we also have a market in, especially in the last two and a half years where it, it's, it's a very hot market. So I think you probably see that. And, and obviously, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, you know, a lot of people were afraid and, you know, it obviously rebounded pretty quickly, <clears throat> but I'm, you know, I'm 31. And so when I was, you know, 2008 or nine or, you know, 2000, my knowledge of what's happening in the startup world is, I think, limited. Uh, but I'm sure 
those are the times when you see how people act and react. I mean, that's when you really get to see the core of like, how, how do people act under pressure? At least, you know, a lot of people at once. I love the humility. It's, that makes a great investor, by the way. Um, <laughs> so if you, if you look at the, the founders that you have invested in versus the founders that you passed on, are there any main traits other than, you know, do you know them, the grittiness, the science, the pedigree? I mean, what people say or what they don't say, I think can tell you a lot. And I think you learn a lot as you go through these diligence processes, I think you learn a lot about, you know, the person and their team. Uh, and some of, I think when you start to meet their team members too, then you learn a lot about the founder because, you know, at that early stage, like they're making that decision. There's only a finite amount of money and people. And so they're picking, you know, these five, six people or however many people is a big deal to them. You know, it's, it's not like they have a hundred people at this company. Um, it still matters then, but it certainly matters more when you only have, you know, 10. So I, I think the people becomes a really big thing. And I think also how they even, and not, not that you need to treat the investor, you know, great or anything like that. But I, I think sometimes you'll see like how they treat uh, you in the process. You know, we're a smaller check size for companies that were coming in. And, you know, not to say that anyone and everyone should let us in. But I think you can tell, even if they're not going to take you, like how they treat you, I think can sometimes tell you, you know, some things about character of the person um, and, and how they may treat other people, um, which I think is important. And um, I think also, although you, you usually only learn this when you say no, you also can learn a lot about when you say no, how people react to that. You know, you'll, I've had some where they, they just, they take that. And that's, I mean, that's probably the norm. Um, then there are others that, that, you know, try to maybe, you know, conserve the relationship and go, yeah, we'd love to stay in touch. And, you know, that's also a norm. But then there's, then there's two opposite sides of the barbell that I've seen. One is where they get kind of, they kind of like, you know, give you a little, a little bit of shit and, and, uh, you know, almost aren't, aren't willing to accept it. And that, that I think tells you a lot. But then there's another, which I've only seen like once or twice, which I, I found almost fascinating where they, when we gave the answers as to why, they like gave this like massively well thought out, you know, rationale as to all these things, almost to the point of like, without seeming argumentative, like trying to, to suck us back in to their orbit to, to reconsider, but without asking us to reconsider. And we, we didn't in this scenario, but I, I found it fascinating and, and, almost semi-impressive. I, I totally agree with you. I actually advise founders, um, if it's a fund or investor that you really want to be on your cap table, even if they say no, try to get a, you know, if you can get um, uh, a Zoom meeting, you know, try to get a Zoom meeting. If you cannot, you know, uh, definitely email, but try to get a sense of why they passed and get very constructive feedback on, you know, just phrase it as, what do you think I should have had for you to invest in us, right? Or, or what do you think we need by our next round, right? Which is you're planting a seed in their in their minds that you want them for your next round. So any big themes that you're seeing? Um, I know we had this conversation a few weeks back. Um, you know, you guys are interested in several areas um, and they seem to intersect with IndieBio quite well. Um, any big themes that you're focused on? Yeah, I mean, 
We get really excited about biomaterial companies that are able to land on many different sectors. Um, so one that we've, we're really uh, excited about is, was Curico, which is a company that is doing SynBio to replicate banned chemicals across many different CPG arenas. And so I thought that that as a platform is very exciting in terms of the scale of what that could do. And I think that we're seeing more of those kinds of companies, you know, and, and it's not surprising, you know, when you see an exit like Inco. So I, I think that that's obviously some of what pushes the market around that. But, but I just genuinely think it's cool. Uh, it's exciting to think that we can create different materials and do that through synthetic biology. Um, and there's so many areas that that can cover. And so I think it's especially interesting in Clever when they figure out a unique way of broadening that to different industries. And there's a lot of companies that are doing it. So, so I think some of it should be about execution um, because it's, you know, it's a frothy space and, and you, you'll, you know, we've certainly seen it with valuations on companies um, you know, very early where they can, you know, balloon up pretty, pretty quickly. So, so the game is, you know, can you find these seed companies or even pre-seed companies before they get frothed up? And uh, we'll see. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that some of the ones that we're looking at that we're pretty excited about are, are in that realm. And so we, we have a few that we're, we're definitely pretty interested in. How do you think about therapeutics companies? You know, the, the path is long um, and uh, the, the exit route is usually via pharma. Um, so how do you think about investing in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think from a core therapeutic standpoint, a lot of it is certainly what I have been brought up to look at is three things. One is how good is IP? Um, if you can have a moat around it, then that's super important because that creates quite a de-risking mechanism, uh, as well as value. Because if you have excellent IP, then even if it doesn't work, there are ways to continue to use it even if things go belly up. And so the IP is really important. I think the other is scientific publications um, and how in what journal that they've specifically been in. And so I think when you see specific science being able to be shown in very reputable journals, especially at a very early stage, I think it's really important uh, because then you get to really see the core of it uh, versus what's aspirational. Uh, and so then you have core hard facts. Uh, the, then the third part is, is this a platform? Is this something that's not just a single use uh, you know, program uh, and something that you think could be done in many different areas? Um, I, I think that that becomes very important. And obviously at any given time, there's a lot of areas that become more, uh, I guess, hot to investors. Like I'm sure mRNA is, is one that's very interesting right now. Um, you know, gene therapy is obviously another. And so those are all areas that I, I think you have to think like what, what is truly differential to these uh, that would make it interesting to still do when you have, you know, these enormous mammoth companies that are out there, uh, you know, that are, you know, quite successful. So in terms of investing in therapeutics, do you try to assess what the big pharmas are currently looking for, you know, what their mandates are, or do you form your own thesis, theses mm -hmm. and 
expect them to, you know, come around to your, your way of thinking in three to five years anyway? I don't think that we think about it. <clears throat> so uh, when we invest in companies, we're much more interested in companies that we think can be enormous, which means, so meaning that we, we're okay with risk that we know that it could completely fail and fast. Um, I think with pharma exits, while there of course are some mammoth exits to pharma, I mean, generally you're going to see more like 200 to $500 million exits uh, to pharma. And so I think if you use the thesis of this is where things will go in terms of, of the, uh, the goalposts to pharma, then you'll be investing in companies that can have exits like that, which is fine. Um, but because we're a smaller firm and are sort of building it, trying to build our, our track record around these things, it is of less interest right now anyways to, um, to do and find ones like that. Um, you know, so we, we do do some investments, like probably a third of our investments are companies that are series B or higher. So they, they're, you know, valued at like 100 or 200 million and have been de-risked to some level that we see as being much more likely to exit like in, the, in like a two year time horizon or three years. And so those are ones we will do if even if a farmer would eat it up. But if it's at that very early stage, less interest to us if we think it's just, you know, on the laundry list of what a pharma company um, wants to be getting. To, to us, it's probably more interesting, like, in 10 years, is this the enormous next place that, that people are going to see a ton of success in? And it may be wrong, of course, you know, a lot, a lot of times it can be. Um, but, but that's more, I think, what we get uh, excited about. Uh, I to totally agree with you. I think, you know, that's the power law uh, of, uh, of early stage venture for you right there. Um, the way I think about it is always, you know, can this company go IPO and stand alone on, on its own? Um, it's great if it gets acquired for a billion dollars, but, you know, I'm not I'm not betting on that to be the only exit. Uh, so most of our audience is probably going to be founders. Any, you know, any big tips for founders, biotech founders? I mean, it depends on the stage, but I mean, I think a lot of biotech founders, especially ones I see now where they are, you know, so, so I think what, one thing that we are seeing as a trend is that there are more, it's more available to all to start a biotech company now. Um, and I think that that will increasingly become so. And so because of that, there may be more junior people doing that, which is, is fine. Like you would see that very normally in tech. I mean, that's a, you know, something that's happening all the time in tech. But I think you now see that more in biotech and seeing more successes around that too. Uh, it doesn't always have to be, you know, a 20 or 30 year pharma vet uh, who comes in and, you know, builds some big company. And so I think because of that, there are lessons to be learned from those tech founders that, um, you know, can be differentiated. And so I think some of those things are, you know, knowing that even though, you know, there are these like more institutional, let's say, founded companies sometimes, that some of those fundamentals are important, like like having good IP. Like that is really always still important, uh, especially in biotech. And I, I think sometimes there are some skirting around that as a question. They're saying, oh, it doesn't matter all that much. But I, but I think it does. And same with the paper part. And, and those things are obviously very... Um, institutional type of things like, you know, figuring out the process of getting good IP or how does one 
you know, think about how do we make very good broad IP claims and it be something that, you know, stands true. Uh, or how do I even get something published? And so I think that those are important things to learn and to do very early <clears throat> because I, I think they are things that matter a lot. I think beyond that, I think because people are starting at a younger time in their career, I think figuring out that balance of like having that hungry entrepreneur's heart and going out there and having grit and making it happen, but also being willing to take criticism and being challenged by people that have been out there. I think that the balance of that is really important too. And so I think the people that can, can balance that and do that in a meaningful way uh, are the ones that will win. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen some where I've been really impressed with their ability to do that. And though, I mean, those are the entrepreneurs that you, you want to back, you know, that you really think you know, no matter what, like they're going to, they may fall, they'll get up. They may not get this, they'll get up. Uh, you know, that, I think that that's important. Totally agree with you. I think um, young founders, I don't, I don't see youth or lack of experience as a negative as long as they're very coachable and they learn quickly. Um, yeah. And also totally agree with you on IP is, you know, in Dubai, we bring in um, IP lawyers every month uh, for the sole purpose of every IP lawyer is going to have a different strategy. We want to, we want our founders to find uh, a good fit for what they're building. And also, you know, it, it's fine not to have IP, but you're limiting yourself to only the VCs that, you know, don't have that as a checkbox that you must have IP. So, you know, that's a, that's a choice that you must make and uh, try not to limit the, the number of investors that would be interested in investing in you early. Um, thank you so much for, for being on this podcast. Um, the last question I asked every guest is who are two or three people that you've always wanted to interview, um, but didn't have the time so I can chase them down for you and interview them. <laughs> next. Well, I mean, I've never, I don't know if I've ever interviewed anyone, but, um, I think people that I think are incredibly interesting. I think one person in the biotech world, uh, that I don't, I, I feel like you probably have maybe already interviewed them, but is George Church. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. And he's Jorge Iglesias, but we're not supposed to call him that. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's, he's incredibly interesting um, and thoughtful. And so, so I, I think he, he would be one, I guess I should, I should, I, this, this is, a, this is a harder one. I, I, I'm going to throw it back to you while I think about it. Um, I, so I've, I'm sort of begging Jennifer Doudna, to, so I'm, I'm with you on the scientists. Um, I also really want to interview David Liu, uh, who came up with uh, single base pair deletions and editing for CRISPR. Um, uh, Tim Liu is, you know, a, a close friend of IndieBio, so I'm definitely going to try to interview him at some point. Um, you know, the whole goal of IndieBio for this podcast is a third VCs, a third founders, and a third scientists and engineers, because uh, I, I just think that. Uh, scientists are so humble that unless I shine the spotlight on them, they're not gonna, you know, self volunteer. So that's my that's my personal mission to uh, to shine the light on scientists and all the great work they're do they're doing. Well, well, one so so one that came to mind as I thought about it is uh, so so Lindy from from Breakout Ventures, I think. Oh, I know Lindy. She's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great that's a great pick. I, I'll definitely interview Lindy. Thanks for uh, that <laughs> suggestion. So from the venture side, I think that, that she'd be pretty awesome. On the founder side, I think Lewis Kang is, is pretty interesting too. Uh, he would be, uh, I think he'd be a great one as well. 
These are these are great suggestions. There, they are. Lindy's already on my list, uh, but I will oh, I will say that you recommended. <laughs> oh, fantastic! I like it. Awesome. Thank you, Michael, for being on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.